You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 161, Orphan Care in Tanzania with Brandon Stiver. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, so glad to be back with you here in the new year. And today, a conversation I know that will be um, yet another lens that is so important for us to know about on elements that relate to human trafficking. And that is, um, and, and I know Brandon's going to really provide a lot of perspective on uh, care for children. Uh, and uh, we talk a lot about children on this podcast, of course, but uh, Brandon's going to, I know, bring us a new perspective. He is an alum of Vanguard University, uh, where the Global Center for Women and Justice, of course, here is based. And Brandon Stiver grew up in the central coast of California and has been working in orphan care in Tanzania since 2010. Uh, Originally working at a Christian orphanage for a couple of years, Brandon realized that even the best of institutions fall dramatically short of meeting the child's deepest and most intimate needs. Brandon's deepest desire for kingdom families is to continue seeing orphaned, vulnerable, and abandoned children restored to God's first construct, the family. Brandon lives in Moshi, Tanzania with his wife, Melissa, and their three children. Brandon, we're so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, thanks. It's, it's really great to be on. It was especially exciting for me to have him visit Vanguard this fall and speak to my commercially sexually exploited class. And I think one of the things I noticed about him first, when he turned on his slides and started presenting. Um, and of course, my students are focused on prevention. And globally, when we look at issues of slavery and human trafficking, children are some of the most marginalized. So when he started his slides, the first thing I noticed is that there were no pictures of him surrounded by smiling orphans. And I thought, Brandon, this is, I'm so proud you're a Vanguard alum. Thank you for coming on our Ending uh-huh. Human Trafficking show. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. Now, in your bio, it talks about how you started in, you you responded to the passion and the compassion, really, for children in places where there are not a lot of resources. And we all know that following the AIDS crisis in Africa, caring for children became a huge issue. So how did you make the shift from working at an orphanage to developing a family-based solution? Yeah, so it, it is really interesting kind of looking back at just kind of the 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 breadth of of what we've been engaged in for almost a decade now. Um, when I first uh, moved to Tanzania, my focus was um, I, I literally felt God calling me to go run an orphanage in Africa. So I kind of went with this idea of what things were, were going to be like and um, started to pursue that and worked with some really uh, great people. And um, they really loved the kids and there was good funding, but we started to kind of recognize as, you know, a couple years in that there really wasn't nothing done uh, for the kids to make it into families. That it was kind of like, 
you know, the kids are going to come in and, and this is where they're going to remain. So just different things that were changing in our own family during that time. My wife, Melissa, and I got pregnant and started to walk this uh, parenthood journey, which, you know, really teaches you a lot as well. And I started to recognize, wow, this is, this really is God's, this is God's plan. It's for, for a husband and wife to have kids. And that was kind of the impetus that compelled us towards starting Kingdom Families, which we started in 2014. So, you know, the first four years of us being engaged in Tanzania, we were doing institutional care and working with the church in other ways. But it was really that understanding of what family is that, that compelled us towards pursuing family-based options. So, so I, I love your website because I'm all about personally partnering public-private with our, our institution, Vanguard University, and our government. So on your website, one of the statements I copy and pasted because I liked it so much is, it is the belief of kingdom families in accordance with Tanzanian policy, as well as scripture, that family-based care is the highest standard of care for a child. We believe that every child has a right to be raised in a family. I love that, the highest standard of care. And we want the best possible care for for our children. So what is Tanzanian policy and how do you how do you implement that? Yeah, so there's actually, you know, there's there's this gap, uh, unfortunately, which you see in a lot of developing countries, there's this gap between uh, you can have it might be UNICEF, it might be other NGOs, it could be just copying and pasting from other uh, countries, but you can actually get some really good laws uh, concerning alternative care, concerning uh, child protection. Um, but unfortunately, there's this really big gap. So for us, um, there's, a, there's a few uh, documents that, you know, are the legislation concerning vulnerable children. You have the Law of the Child Act, um, which has provisions for stuff like foster care. It does also have provisions for residential care facilities, um, and that is very much uh, relied upon. But then you get into some of the policies. So for Tanzania in particular, we have what's called the National Guidelines for for Most Vulnerable Children. And what the National Guidelines talk about is basically how do you how do you work with children that are that are vulnerable? And it goes through all these different service areas, you know, psychosocial support, the importance of family-based care, all these types of things. And when we what we noticed you know, we, we had started Kingdom Families before we even came across this document. And, you know, we work with people in the government and they're not even implementing it. And yet it's, it is the policy of the country itself. And what we noticed is, you know, in a developing country such as, such as Tanzania, there's really a, a lack of, of infrastructure um, to actually implement the things that they have uh, put into their own policy, such as national guidelines. Uh, they also have um, the plan of action for Tanzania, which is another policy that also talks about the importance. I mean, you, you can literally go through these types of policies that will say stuff like, stuff like residential care facilities are to be a last resort and every attempt should be made to keep a child in their family or to reunify them with their family. So this is the type of words that they actually use. And, and we're saying, well, great, you know, that's, that's the call of the churches to support vulnerable families. Um, we ourselves have been adopted by God, according to Romans 8. So the language of the legislation really jibes with, 
what we can read in scriptures. And yet, unfortunately, from the NGO standpoint, and Tanzania, like a lot of countries, really heavily rely um, on nonprofits, on NGOs to kind of provide the services. So we just basically said, well, let's take those policies and let's take what we can read from scripture. Let's unify that with what we're already doing, what, you know, and build something that we can use in the communities that is best practice. Because basically, you know, and as a father, you know, I have a, I have a, a, a standard, you know, for the type of care that my children are going to receive. Yeah. And it's, it's really important that if I'm going to create something within alternative care, that it would meet the standard that for my own children, I would be comfortable with this. Yeah, that's a really encouraging um, motivator for me if I'm looking at supporting children in Tanzania and other countries where this has become a huge issue. So when you're explaining what the guidelines are and what they want, why why not orphanage-based care? What's the problem there? Okay, before I address that, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of back up. Okay. You know, alternative care is, is really what we do. Alternative care basically just means that anything that's alternative to a kid's family of origin. So the natural place for a kid to grow up is in their own family with their own parents. Now, for reasons that you've discussed on this show and that we're all aware of, there are reasons why families might break down and that a kid might end up in alternative care. So the first line, and this is even going, uh, the United Nations released something called the, the Guidelines for Alternative Care. It's really great. It talks about uh, two principles when engaging with vulnerable families. One of them is necessity. So is it even necessary for a kid to enter alternative care? And then the second is suitability. So when we talk about, about vulnerable families, the first thing that I really like the way that they laid it out because they're saying, is it even necessary for a kid to enter in the first place? And the truth is the vast majority of children that uh, end up in alternative care really ought not be there in the first place. I think you told us in class that 90% based on the Lumos Foundation that are in orphanages worldwide have at least one living parent. Yeah, yeah. So worldwide, they're gauging somewhere around around 80 to 90%. Lumos in particular has done a lot of work in Haiti. And that's where that particular stat is coming from, where it is upwards of 90. Now, Haiti, which is not the context that we serve in, but I'm familiar with it to a degree, kind of gets all the, the worst of our development and child protection practices from the West. So you have a lot of kids that are unnecessarily, probably even to a higher degree, um, that are institutionalized for, for no good reason. So, so, but yeah, about, so when we talk about the necessity, you know, we have to recognize that. If I take five kids and four of them still have a parent, we have to ask the question, why is this kid going in in the first place? So, and um, within that, they, within the, within that necessity principle, it's really important that we, that we prevent, you know, kids unnecessarily leaving their families. And then if, if it is absolutely necessary that a kid enters alternative care, you have to have what's called the continuum of care. And basically, a continuum of care means that there's going to be all these different um, ways that we can help this child and uh, get them into a a proper living situation. And in Tanzania, um, the context where we serve, it is very common for a child to enter a residential care facility 
which is just one form of alternative care. And as you alluded to, Dr. Morgan, it's, it's not really an ideal place for a kid to grow up. So, but it's not the only alternative that should be provided. There should be foster care. There should be adoption. There should be kinship care, which means being cared for by another relative, which is very common, but not from a formal standpoint. So there should be all these other alternatives along the, the continuum. And if a kid has to enter a residential care facility, it ought to be a last resort. And you can actually find that in policies in Tanzania or in international standards. You can find those in the policies, but unfortunately, such as in Tanzania, you can say it's a last resort, but we'll have a kid that can show up at social welfare department and within that same day be placed in, in an orphanage. Wow. So is it really the last resort? It's, it's hard to say. So that's one of the things that we address with Kingdom Families is have kids been wrongfully institutionalized? If so, how can we create a pathway for them to get back into the communities? And if it's, if it's possible to intervene before the child is relinquished, you know, how can we, how can we do that to ensure that that kid has an opportunity to grow up within a family and uh, within their own community? Well, and, you know, my perspective here in California is that when we take children out of unsafe homes through our child welfare department, and then we don't have a family to place them with, and so we put them in a group home, uh, especially if they're adolescents, they just run away, and that makes them much more vulnerable to becoming victims of human trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Prevention is, what's the old adage? An ounce, uh, an ounce of prevention, of prevention yeah. is, is, is worth a pound of cure, right? Yeah, I was trying so, to figure out how to turn that into see. grams and kilograms, but um, there you go for international yeah, exactly. relevance. So, okay, so then if they're almost in the same day put into um, an institutional residential care that's not following the UN guidelines or the Tanzanian, um, what are the problems that we'll see later on down the road from that? as a result of, of that for the child's psychosocial development? Specifically regarding Tanzania, institutional care is, is sanctioned. It, it's made, there's a provision for it within the law of the child, but then in their policies, they'll say it's not, it's not an ideal spot and kids ought to be supported in, their, in families. But once a kid has been institutionalized, they can run into any number of, of social disorders, uh, things that go on psychologically, they'll experience trauma. When we talk about, you know, I know you guys talk about um, trauma on your show quite a bit, and especially within the, the, the victims of, of human trafficking uh, populace, there's, there's a significant amount of trauma. I mean, the separation itself, even if there wasn't a death, just the fact that the kid was relinquished and is now separated from their parents, that is traumatic. And then once they are there, that's not just a, oh, that one traumatic thing happened that one time when my you know, parents had to drop me off at the gate. It's an, it's an everyday type of trauma. It, it's something that, that takes place day after day after day because you're not seeing your family. You are disconnected. You feel as though, and, and most often is the case, you're not receiving adequate emotional support, um, not receiving adequate spiritual support, often physical support as well. And then you have increased vulnerability towards other things such as trafficking, um, would be one. And there have certainly been cases of that. Basically, what, what you look at, just kind of the, the cross-section between, you know, the communities that we serve and, and what you guys are doing here through the podcast and other measures at, at the Global Center, you know, once a kid has been separated 
from their parents. It's, it's pretty clear and well understood that having a good parental oversight, having a mom or dad or, you know, a, a substitute at least, that's kind of the first line of child protection. So when a kid has been institutionalized, um, they lose that first level of protection. And that's not even to get into a lot of the perverse reasons why a kid might be institutionalized in the first place. Because basically what you can get into is you, you make a commodity out of a child. And this is one of the things that I discussed with your CSAC class is whether it's for the purposes of international adoption, which there's been a, an incredible amount of corruption in over the last two or three decades, or if it's just soliciting donations for the orphanage. So you have not classic orphans, but rather social orphans or poverty orphans or or just kids that are living there, you turn those kids into a commodity. And then those kids can be, those kids, you, you can visit Kilimanjaro and say, hey, why don't you come by the orphanage and play with the kids? And, you know, and then, the, then hey, when you're leaving, could you leave, you know, $100, $200, $300? And most of that money might end up in the pocket of uh, orphanage director. And that definitely happens. That happens in the area that we live and work. And, and, you know, I know so many people that run children's homes that have the best of intentions and they do love the kids and, and they don't exploit them. But even in those situations, the kid is still detached. So they can run into things like reactive attachment disorder, something that um, takes place. And I'm not a clinician, but I have a lot of experience just from the field and from our own family. But reactive attachment disorder uh, starts when a kid is not able to make a secure attachment, um, normally with the mother, uh, first and foremost. If not the mother, then hopefully a mother substitute. And we ha we've seen kids, I know kids, know their names, know their faces, where they have been institutionalized on day one. Now, if a kid is institutionalized from day one and never get a secure attachment, meaning, you know, that, that multisensory attachment where the child gets to uh, nurse from the mother and see her smiling and, and all those things, those are building attachment. So we experience this with, with our children. When a kid is deprived of that, at the earliest set, they start to function differently and their brain starts to develop differently. And it's really crucial for that to take place early on. There's different studies that say it has to be, you have to have a secure attachment within the first three years. And then there's other studies say, no, it's the first 18 months. No, it's the first seven months. There's kind of all these different studies that are going around, but the base for reactive attachment disorder starts with, with a child that never had a secure attachment. Okay. So that's a lot of children that are growing up separated from families and in institutional care. The other consequence you, of, of that is that in an, in an institution, you actually have caretakers who come in that are there for 10 hours, 12 hours, and they're there three days a week or five days a week. And so there isn't a consistent caregiver. And so one caregiver may respond really well when the child is in distress and the next one doesn't. So the child doesn't learn to trust or to regulate themselves. Yeah. And as they get older, they develop skills that are based on survival and that yeah. actually makes them more vulnerable to a trafficker who might recruit them because they see the trafficker, and you've heard us say this many times on this show, the trafficker presents himself as a loving caretaker. 
And they're so used to having a different loving caretaker over and over again that it isn't a big stretch for them to accept that. And the idea that you have to teach a child not to trust a stranger, they've been taken care of by strangers. And so they already know that this is about survival. Exactly. And, and it is that, that inconsistency of care is, is something that exacerbates the fact that the child was already not properly attached to a, to a secure and to a safe adult, normally the mother. So it's not, and it is not only the caregivers, but within an institutional care setting, unfortunately, um, because it takes a tremendous amount of money to run an orphanage, people will you know, go there on a vacation and they'll want to go and visit a children's home. Now, if I'm from California, if I were to travel to, say, New York City, I, I would say, you know, I want to go and I want to see the Statue of Liberty or, you know, I want to go to Times Square. I wouldn't say, you know, I really want to go visit a group home. <laughs> and but we wouldn't let you in. <laughs> in the majority room. And they wouldn't let me in. Yeah, that's right. Of course they wouldn't right. let me in. I'm, I'm not credentialed. I'm not, I'm not a, a social worker. I'm not a therapist. I'm not going to work there. They wouldn't let me in. But unfortunately, because these levels of protection have been weakened or just really aren't there in the first place, in the majority world, these children become tourist attractions. And it's, again, it's that making the child a commodity and then it's to the financial benefit of people that are running that children's home. Now, again, you're going to find intentions across the spectrum. You'll also find some people that do that, but they have really great intentions and they love the kids. And then you'll have those that have perverse uh, intentions right. within that. But, but the baseline is there needs to be money for the children's home. So, that's, so then they're encouraged to, hey, you're here for a week or two. You're on a short-term missions trip or you're doing a safari. Hey, why don't you come and you know, play with the kids? And then the kids are encouraged to jump all over strangers and do all those things that we would not expect from our own kids. Right. Um, if I saw, you know, my five-year-old daughter jumping all over a stranger, that would be a red flag to me. Yeah. And yet, you know, for, for us and our family, that's something that we have to walk through because one of our children did grow up for eight years in a children's home. And we kind of have to temper that and teach, you know, not everybody's safe, those that's- types of things. So again, you get back to what's the first line of, of prevention, what's the first line of child protection. It is having a safe parental figure, and those children are at risk mostly because they don't have that level of protection. And, and they don't do well when they age out of, of a residential care institutionalized situation because they haven't been members of a community outside of that artificial circumstance. And so when you when you bring a child who grew up in an orphanage into your home, you have to teach them about your culture, right? Sure. Yeah. And you know, for us, because this has been something that we've been walking in for the last two and a half years, that has a very unique flavor because our son is Tanzanian and we're American and and we knew him. I actually knew my son before I knew my wife because we adopted him from the children's home he used to work at. So that has a unique flavor. What is, and, and of course, because we're Americans and this is a, you know, we're a multicultural family, that's going to happen. But the even more uh, intriguing thing 
is if you have a Tanzanian couple that adopt or bring a kid in that has been living in an orphanage, um, and this is something that we focus on. We promote domestic adoption. It, it has to be something within the continuum of care for kids that don't have an opportunity to return to their families of origin. So we do promote adoption, and you can have a kid that's been living you know, within their home country and living for years on end within an institution, and then they don't leave the country. They may not even leave the town or the city. They just enter into a family environment, and they have to learn a different culture. Mm. And now it's their culture. It's the culture of their country. So if I go from Moshi and then I drive an hour and a half to Arusha, or if I drive to the coast and go to Tonga, or you know, there's going to be a lot of elements that are similar because it's Tanzanian culture. But if a kid has been spending years on end or the majority of their childhood in a children's home, they've learned an alternative culture that doesn't actually translate. And that's part of the issue with aging out, as you mentioned. So we can be really great about, you know, getting them education and education is important, but within education, that's also an institution. So the kid isn't necessarily learning a lot about how normal society works. They're just continuing to function in an institution. So you can focus on the education, you can do the vocational training. All of those things are great for helping a kid when they do age out. But if they don't know how to get on public transport or if they don't know how to, you know, just have a, a secure social network um, within their community, they're going to be so, they're going to still be very much at risk. And then they've learned how to basically be, be dependent on this institution. So there's a lot of really difficult things that kids do face um, once they've aged out of, of these residential care facilities. So let me ask you the really big question. If we quit supporting orphanages, won't that leave millions of children in crisis? So you can't do it overnight. There has to be a transition that takes place. So um, the estimates on number of kids that are actually living in residential care, it, it, it's a bit of a broad range, actually. And one of the reasons that it's hard to gauge is because it's really hard when so many orphanages open up and you don't even know that they exist. And yet those kids would still count within whatever that number is. So when you talk about millions, so with kids that are living in worldwide um, within residential care right now, it's somewhere between two and eight million. So like I said, it's a bit of a range. Now I tend to think that it's, it's higher on the range. So let's just say there's eight million kids. If, if all the funding just stopped, would all those kids, you know, what would happen with those kids? You have to have a very thought out and a very intentional, and there are great resources out there. Uh, we call this uh, transitioning care. One of my favorite organizations is Face to Action Initiative. They have a great manual um, on transitioning. Uh, so if an orphanage or a residential care facility has recognized, you know, there's things that we can do to help these kids. Let's shut down operations, but let's start the transition. Then you're using, you know, you don't just stop donating. You keep supporting the same organization, but now they are promoting family-based solutions. So then you can have some of the caregivers, maybe you send them to school, but now they become social workers. Maybe you have some of them that, you know, uh, are community development or they're engaged in the community. And maybe some of them, you know, have to be let go. Or There are ways that you can actually uh, transition care. And it, it can't be an overnight thing. Um, everything takes time. And it is true that 
the funding is a big thing. So I used to do the books at a children's home. And if I had, and this is several years ago now, I'm sure that their budget has, has grown. But if I had what they made in one month, it would last us to serve twice as many kids for six months. Wow. And they would be within families. So it is true that there are needs for donors to support kids in a way that promotes them to be in family-based services. So there does have to be a big shift uh, in the finances, but um, a shift in the finances is only one part of it. You also have, a sh- have to have a shift where people say, you know what, if we look at all the different alternatives within the continuum of care, we can see that, okay, everybody, at least, you know, in our region or, you know, we've got the residential thing down. There's lots of residential options you know, but there's nobody doing foster care. Why don't we focus on foster care? You know, hey, we have these great policies. Why don't we work with the government to implement these? You know what? There's there's all these ways that we can support a vulnerable mother, you know, a single mother so that she doesn't give up her kids. Why don't we focus that. on prevention? What you've done for us as listeners in our community is you've really helped us understand the importance of, of a family-centered approach And you've also given us several tools, and I just want everybody to know that um, all the tools you've mentioned, you've already sent them the links to me, and they'll be posted in the show notes here. It's amazing how fast a half an hour goes. And and if people have more questions, is it all right if we forward those on to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We always love to engage. I love to see vulnerable children, um, practitioner communities, kind of grow out of out of how you can connect here on ending human trafficking. But Brandon, you, we could talk for an hour easily. We already have a couple of times. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your experience, for your journey. I love the that I hear the righteous indignation that sounds like a father. And I also appreciate the fact that you are willing to share that when you started, you were in the same place that many others are. And as my students come to Vanguard, many of them sign up for my classes because they think someday they're going to go open an orphanage. And I want them to see some different ways that they can do that. And as our listeners, I hope that you will um, follow up, send this, share it, bring, send it to your church if they support an orphanage to help figure out some of those transition and ways to improve the lives of now close to 8 million children who are living in orphanages instead of families, the way God designed our children to grow up. So thank you so much for being on the show, Brandon. And we hope that if you have a question, you'll send us an email at gcwj at vanguard.edu. Sandy, I, uh, I echo what you've said here so much in this episode. Uh, I was uh, just absorbing everything, not, not having you know, had any personal experience with the work Brandon's doing. It's just fantastic uh, what's, what's happening and so much for us to explore. Uh, please do check out the show notes. Um, also, remember that if you're wanting to be challenged with new knowledge, new perspective, and most importantly, building new relationships and partnerships, a great way to do that is to uh, connect with our Ensure Justice Conference coming up March 2nd and 3rd, 2018 here in Southern California. If you have not yet uh, looked into that, you can find out more at insurejustice.com. And we look forward to meeting you in person there in March 2018. Sandy, I'll see you again in two weeks. Take care. Can't wait. Bye.